0: talking books on new 106 to 108 you might reach a point where everything's either been solved or it's impossibly difficult and nobody knows what to do but i don't think so because it's a bit like if you're exploring some new territory the bigger the area you have explored the bigger the perimeter of that area is where there are, there are new directions to go. Yes, if you're exploring Africa, let's say, um, a, a, until you actually explore the whole of Africa, um, the stuff that you know about has has more... Because there's more of it, there's more stuff on the boundary of it that you don't know about. OK, on, on, on a spherical planet, eventually you discover you get to the end. And if maths was like that, then we might find... Everything's converging onto just one problem, and once you've solved that, you've got everything. I don't think so. Um, The first point is that the actual number of mathematical statements that can be written down is infinite, and uh, certainly the experience of history is, the further mathematics goes, it just gives you more places to start from and more techniques and more kind of case studies of how to go about understanding new problems. So there's certainly no sign at the moment of it coming to an end. There are lots of unsolved problems around. Um, in, In fact, I wrote one book called The Problems of Mathematics, which was essentially talking about the problems that had been solved and ending by listing quite a number that had not been solved and which we mathematicians would dearly like to know, not just know what the answer is, but you have to know why.
1: Maths doesn't arrive in a vacuum. It's created by people. The perceptive words of British mathematician, writer and teacher Ian Stewart from his latest book, Significant Figures, Lives and Works of Trailblazing Mathematicians, published by Profile Books. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore the bumpy, competitive and often highly unpredictable world of maths with award-winning writer and mathematician Ian Stewart. And ask, what does it take to be a great mathematician? And how has our understanding of mathematical genius changed over time? Insignificant Figures, Ian Stewart writes, maths is different it endures there is an unbroken line of mathematical thought that goes all the way back from tomorrow to babylon in goes on to argue in mathematics we do move on but we don't discard our history so do you have to do maths to appreciate maths My name is Ian Stewart. I'm Emeritus Professor of Mathematics
0: at Warwick University, which of course means I'm retired. Um, But I still do quite a lot of mathematical research, mainly these days in areas related to mathematical biology. Um, But for a long time, I've uh, written quite a lot of popular mathematics books. Some people think that's a bit of a contradiction in terms, but trying to make maths um, something that anybody can understand and, and, and read about. And I've written about 30 or more maths books of that kind. The the first one that really took off was one called Does God Play Dice, which was about chaos theory. Um, And I did one recently called Calculating the Cosmos, which is about mathematics and astronomy and cosmology. Um, I also write science fiction. I've done five science fiction novels over the years, so um, it's a kind of hobby of mine.
1: Really well done on Significant Figures, Ian. It's a a tremendously interesting read. Um, I learned a lot about human frailty as well as genius as I progressed through uh, through the book. So really well done on that. I might start with a big uh, wide open question for you. Is maths all about truth and beauty or what is it to you?
0: Um, It's certainly about those, but I think... um Maths is it's, it's an enormously broad subject with a very, very long history. It, it's, um, we, we really, in school, we only get a tiny little bit of something that's actually much broader, much deeper, um, and much more relevant to daily life. Where a lot of people think, well, I never use any maths, so what's the point of it? Um, you may not use it yourself, but almost all of the gadgets that you use, practically everything that happens in your life, just behind the scenes, there's lots and lots of mathematics and I've always, you know, been, a, <laughs> as you might imagine, I, I, I'm a sort of math fan. And um, I would like people to understand just how, um, you know, how, how what an amazing subject it is. It is very beautiful at times. It can be extraordinarily frustrating. Some bits of it are incredibly boring. There are certainly times in mathematics where you think, well, reading the telephone book would actually be a much more interesting thing to do. Um, But a lot of mathematics is about logical structure and uh, it relates very much to how the natural world works. There's a lot of mathematics in nature. You just have to dig a little deeper than most of us do to start to appreciate that it's there.
1: Do you think in some regards that mathematicians are underestimated? And what I mean by that is they can at times be labelled as a certain type of thinker or have a certain type of brain, and that we forget that, as you mentioned earlier, whether it's the world of high finance or technology, that a lot of it all comes back to maths and the role of mathematicians.
0: I think there's a stereotype of of mathematicians, which is they're a bit otherworldly, head in the clouds, and... um, they can be very very logical but they they're also sort of lacking in human emotion and so forth. Now one of the problems is um there are people like that in the subject uh tends to attract the subject tends to attract people who um are perhaps not quite as focused on on social things as others. But really if you get to know mathematicians and start to look at what they do they're much the same mostly as other people. There are some well-known eccentrics, but then even in any walk of life, there there are eccentrics. But most mathematicians are sensible. Um, they tend to have families. They tend to do the sort of things that everybody else does. I, I have colleagues who go hang gliding. I have a colleague who runs a farm. Um, I, I have a colleague who writes poetry. Um, you know, So mathematicians do... Most of the things, one of the things I tried to show in the book is that they are interesting and in most ways fairly normal human beings, but they have this type of, um, mathematicians are very strongly focused on logical arguments, getting the logic straight, getting the thinking straight. They tend to be very critical in various ways, Um, they will ask difficult questions because they can see the loopholes in things. I I, I watch um, television and and they put up some figures about um, salaries and inflation or anything like that. And I look at them and I think, yes, that's all very well, but actually that's not the right graph. You (laughs) You should be putting up something that's a little more informative than just these bare figures. You know, if, if you're talking about people's wages relative to inflation, what you really want to look at is the, the, what the wages are worth in real terms over a period of time. Have they gone up? Have they gone down? Um, and often they don't do that. So um, that's a sort of mathematician's way of thinking, I think.
1: When you look at um, a load of figures on a page or whatever it is, do they all read as questions and stories <laughs> or how do you understand it all?
0: If I'm presented with a load of figures, and it's not just that, but let's focus on that particular aspect of mass, trying to trying to extract some sort of information from a pile of numbers. Um, I'm looking for patterns. I'm looking for trends. I'm looking for tendencies. I'm looking for uh, anything that can, it, 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 so that it's not just a, a mass of unstructured numbers. But oh look, are the numbers getting bigger and bigger? Um, what what happened there? There's something very strange going on there. I was watching the Formula One today, and suddenly one of the the gap between one driver and the next driver went down enormously fast. In in a few seconds, it had it had dropped a lot. And I'm sitting there looking at these numbers in the top corner of the screen, and thinking, "Hang on, something's gone wrong there. What's happening?" And it took the commentators about a minute before they noticed. Um, so you can see these structure in numbers. Um, you know, and part of the mathematician's job over the centuries has been to, not just from numbers, but from shapes and from probabilities and from all sorts of things, to try and find the, the underlying patterns in how things behave.
1: And I suppose also to infer from those numbers something else.
0: Oh, yes. What we like to do once we've seen the patterns is to start to um, write down some description of what the pattern is Coming from, what's causing it. So, if you look at the history of mathematics, you'll find a lot of interaction between maths and science. And for example, Isaac Newton, um, looking at the movements of planets in the solar system, he ends up writing down a very simple equation for the force of gravity between any two bodies. And um, that equation actually captures almost everything that was going on in the solar system. Uh, you wouldn't, you can't, you have to be an Isaac Newton to look at the figures and, <laughs> and see that equation in them. But once once someone has realized that there is this mathematical model behind it all, there's a mathematical rule for what's going on, and the numbers are coming out of that rule, then you've understood something quite deep. And furthermore, you can use the same rule to predict all sorts of other behaviors which... Um, you would never be able to get just staring at the numbers.
1: And just as a matter of interest, how do you deal with all the success or the failure regarding those numbers? Because I can only imagine that there are some weeks or months when the world is an extraordinarily beautiful place, given the numbers and patternings, and other times you must be <laughs> filled with despair. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, sometimes you look at the way the world is going, and it's not just mathematicians who can do this. Actually, the human mind is very good at picking up patterns. This is one of the things it's absolutely brilliant at. And all of us can look at what's going on in the newspapers or on television or on the internet and, and, and kind of you, sometimes you get the feeling everything's going in a, a sort of positive direction and that's all very encouraging and other days you look and say oh no they can't be doing that can they really um, and of course that's all mixed up with your own particular beliefs and politics and other things mm. but um, maths—it's not entirely neutral but the point is that the maths is whatever the math is it's then a question of what people do with that math that's important and there have been, certainly been examples of Abuse of mathematics, misuse of mathematics. You can write down a beautiful equation, you can do lovely, lovely sums, you can um, come up with all sorts of wonderful theories, but if they don't actually match the real world, well, it's not great for anything. Uh, Other times you can do this, and even if it doesn't match the real world, the maths is still interesting for other reasons. Um, Sometimes you get a bit of maths that looks really, really interesting, and you think, now, what good is that going to be to anybody? And Well, probably none, (laughs) but it does look very pretty. Um, so, uh, I think there's lots of different you know, ways to approach math. Different people have different views of it. mathematicians argue with each other about the right way to do things and what they usually mean is my way of doing things. Um, but there are, there are differences of opinion as to what's worth doing, what's not, how, um, how much emphasis you have to place on logical proofs, how much you should rely on Uh, evidence of other kinds. If you go to any university department and sit in the maths common room, you'll hear discussions about these kinds of things going on, along with what's happening in the cricket or the football or whatever.
1: So, Ian, you have collated, I think it's 25 significant figures, different men and women, genius mathematicians from the ancient to the modern world. And I'm just wondering, they're they're so varied, there's so many different types of temperaments that you've brought into it. I'm just wondering, how how did you reduce it to 25? Because there are hundreds of amazing mathematicians that have walked this earth since time immemorial. So I'm just wondering, and a lot of mathematicians in your own field would possibly, feel that you've excluded some to the benefit of others.
0: Oh very much so. Uh, uh, I mean the the pump position is that more significant figures is always possible Um, but uh, you know uh, the the standard length for a book, if you make a book too long firstly it costs too much and secondly people get tired of reading it. So there is a fairly standard sort of length for a popular maths book and when I did the sums I reckon somewhere between 20 and 25 people was really the most I could get away with. Um, So then the question is, I have left out several very, very, very important mathematicians. Uh, I've left them out for all sorts of reasons, um, mostly because uh, I didn't want to overload it with too many people who were doing the same kind of thing in the same sort of way, even if it was very important. I, I wanted some sort of random sample in a way. I wanted to make the point that it's not just Europeans. I wanted to make the point that it's not just men, Um, and so I ended up with some sort of long list of of people, and the question was, firstly, are these people who really did do something extremely important? And I I think of them as trailblazers, people who took mathematics in a new direction and did something very significant with it. So that's the first criterion. If, If they haven't done that, then I'm certainly not interested in them. Uh, The next thing I did was say, if they're still alive, I'm not going to talk about them. (laughs) Um, That's uh, uh, all sorts of reasons. for that one is that if you if you write about live people, they're liable to sue you. So it's often better not to. Uh, But I just needed to cut it down. Um, And so I ended up with a list of about 40 or 50. And then I started going through them, asking questions like, are these people interesting in their own right? Is there a human story as well? because that was one of the things I wanted to get over. Uh, OK, if someone um, is very, very important, but the human story is not very strong, they still get into the book because it's important for the mathematics. Um, if they have a wonderful human story and the mathematics is rubbish, well, they're not going to get in. Uh, but the best ones are the people who have interesting stories about their lives, which may or may not be related to their mathematics. It's usually related in some way. But who lived interesting lives, were interesting people, rather unusual, and also did something that was really, really important. So it was a selective process. And uh, I do say quite early on in the book, um, if your favorite mathematician is missing, it's not because I don't think they're important. It's just because at the end of the day, I had to choose 25.
1: Can we talk about mathematical talent? You write, extreme mathematical ability doesn't correlate strongly with anything else. It seems to strike at random. I thought that was very interesting because a lot of people correlate musical ability with mathematical ability. And what you've shown is some can be very straightforward and some can be highly quirky, but they're all just human beings after all. That's right. I think so. There there, there may be some sort of weak
0: correlation between interest in mathematics and interest in music um part of that i think it, it, historically um the, the the intellectuals in european society um music was one of the ways that it was a standard entertainment if you were you know if, if you were a a doctor or a lawyer or or a, the, the, the wife or daughter or son or whatever of such people um where we would put, uh, you know, turn on, turn on the radio or put a CD on, um, they would go to a concert. Or uh, if they were very, very rich, they'd have the concert come to them. Um, and so the, the intellectuals tended to be in a musical environment anyway. So I think some of this correlation between maths and music, um, it may be slightly mythical. There is some truth in it. But for example, I, I had a friend at University, who was much more musical than I was. I played electric guitar. He played French horn, uh, cello and piano, and also bass guitar, actually. Um, He was very, very musical. He was in the National Youth Orchestra. He was an economist. Now, does that count as maths and music because economics is a bit mathematical? Well, if you want to, you know, I th- I think he shows that um, non-mathematicians can also be musical.
1: <laughs> Presumably, you think visually. I know that you mentioned that 90% of mathematicians think visually and 10% think formally. I thought that was surprising in one way. But then when you think about what they're doing, it isn't.
0: Yeah, it, 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 it's. I think it's important there to, um, well, for me to say what I mean by thinking visually. Um, This this 90-10 figure actually comes from a study that was done in about 1945 by a top mathematician. And he went around and asked all his friends how they thought. And because he was a mathematician, he could ask them the the more difficult questions. So um, the formal thinkers from this point of view, the 10%, are the ones who simply think in terms of symbols on a page or on a blackboard. And if they're thinking about anything at all, it's what happens when you move those symbols around and and manipulate them and and do the sums. Um, The visual thinkers, it's visual in the sense that they will draw little doodles, they will um, wave their hands in the air as if they're talking about a shape. Um, Even if it's something very, very abstract, you'll see them sort of holding it up in front of them and say, well, now, if you you think about this object, and and the object is actually some, some... complicated idea in mathematical logic or something but they say, well, if you turn it upside down and then chop a piece off the end like this and then they'll write down the symbols now you start to see how that relates to something else and so they have these kind of rather vague doodle-like visual images in their minds in some areas of math such as geometry you do you actually do very careful pictures Um, but the visual thinking is is different from that it's more to do with imagining in your mind's eyes some kind of visual metaphor for what the mathematics seems to be telling you and if if you look at the blackboards in the common room at warwick university where i still go in and work from time to time they are covered in these little diagrams There's symbols as well but people are, are drawing these little diagrams for something that's actually extraordinarily complicated you know, they'll say um, think of a seven-dimensional sphere, and then they'll draw a little circle. and It won't be a very good circle. <laughs> um, but this gives them something to, to latch on to. So the people who think purely in terms of symbols seem to be in the minority. And most mathematicians, even the top quality research mathematicians, um, a lot of the time, particularly when they're first trying to understand some new problem, they will draw little diagrams and think in, in, in actually quite vague ways about them. Well, suppose you look at it from this point of view. Suppose, you, suppose we, we, we move these things around a bit. Suppose we rearrange this stuff. Does that give us any idea what's going on? Um, I, I've done a paper with a couple of colleagues recently on uh, mathematical biology where the whole, the whole idea behind it came from drawing one S-shaped wiggly line and saying, oh, look, <laughs> look at the shape of that curve. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of flat in the middle. Um, what do we know about that?
1: Can we talk about one of, possibly one of the most famous mathematicians of all time, or uh, certainly a mathematician that all school children hear of, um, Archimedes. He was born in Sicily. He died during uh, the Punic Wars rather dramatically. And you you write his story, I might add, very well. Do you think we couldn't understand anything to do with maths if we didn't have um, Archimedes? Like, did he set all the precedences, do you think?
0: Archimedes is probably the, the... the most significant figure of his period. There were several others who ought to be in the book, but there wasn't room. Um, but he was—he was a polymath. He did so many different things. He was—he um, was definitely, in as much as genius means anything, he was a genius. And he wasn't just brilliant at mathematics. He was a very good engineer. Um, and if the stories about him are remotely near the truth, and I think they probably are, he. Um, Among other things, he invented some very powerful war machines, which got used. Uh, There's a story about um, him getting soldiers to use their polished shields to focus the sun's light on a ship and set it on fire. Um, And even if it's not a true story, uh, it it is just about possible to do that, although you have to be rather... It helps if the ship is highly inflappable, (laughs) but they were. Um, He invented something a bit like a sort of crane with a grabber on the end, which could actually lift ships up out of the water. He understood the law of the lever. He wrote it down. He understood about pulleys. Um, He invented the Archimedean screw, which is this sort of um, helical uh, gadget inside a tube, and you you rotate it, and and it, it will lift water. Um, which is actually very important, particularly even nowadays, but certainly in ancient times, being able to lift water up from the river onto the fields was extremely important. Um, I, so he, you know, he, so he covers a lot of different areas.
1: I wonder if we put him in the theatre of war, contemporary warfare today, or possibly on um, a modern building site, um, what he would make of things.
0: I think certainly on a building site. Um, as long as it's not things like, I mean, we have a certain amount of electronic gadgets we now use on building sites. But a lot of what goes on on building sites, he'd look at a crane or something. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a lot bigger than he was used to. But I think Archimedes would look at that and say, oh, yeah, I can see what that's doing. And probably after about 20 minutes, he'd say, you know, I think there's a better way of doing this. He would be at home in um, a mathematics department. He'd need to be brought up to speed on some of the things that happened in the two, two and a quarter thousand years since um, since he lived. But I think he, that there are, his work previews all sorts of important things that are around today. And you never know what would have, if Archimedes had not been born, what would have happened? Well, some of this stuff would have happened anyway, but maybe later on. But he was born and he did these things and everything built on that. So he is one of one of the key half a dozen or so figures in the whole of mathematics.
1: But you could look at us that we are in conversation with him even today in yes. how we go about our daily lives.
0: Certainly, that's the case, and there are there are things that we see every day which um, which go right back to Archimedes. Um, there's Archimedes' principle for which he used to tell whether. Um, some metal was 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 really pure gold, or whether it had been uh, there there been some sort of base metal mixed in with it. And this is basically basically you drop it in water and you see how much water it it displaces, and um, from that you can work out the density. And if the density, if the gold, it should be pretty dense. And if it's not as dense as that, then it's not. Well, this kind of thing is still used. And every time you get in the bath and the bath water goes up, you're actually uh, experimenting with Archimedes' principle.
1: Ian, you mentioned a really impressive uh, mathematician. He was a Persian mathematician who created uh, what you describe as the House of Wisdom, which was essentially a library full of all different types of books from different types of traditions, so from the Arabic and Christian traditions. And he was a man who had great foresight. I'll let you pronounce his name. <laughs>
0: uh, well, it's, it's Mohammed al-Khwarizmi.
1: That's him, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I can't say it properly. The the only person I know who can say it properly is somebody who is is from that... You know, he speaks um, Arabic.
1: Why yeah, is now, he considered the father of algebra? Though?
0: Yeah, okay. Now, the the House of Wisdom, he, he, was, um, he was one of the leading lights of the House of Wisdom. It was actually started by Caliph al-Rashid and then picked up by his son, who was the Caliph al-Mamun. Um, but what they did was get scholars to come to this place and translate writings from other cultures, from Greece, from um, China, from anywhere around, India. Um, so the, uh, the scholars were collecting together um, important writings, and their job was to translate them into Arabic, but actually several of them started writing their own stuff and taking it further. And on the mathematical side, Al-Khwarizmi is uh, the one who stands out. And he he did two very important things with two different books, which I tend to think of as kind of medieval mathematical bestsellers. So the first one is uh, something fairly straightforward. He wrote a book about the Hindu-Arabic system for writing down numbers, the one we use today, where we only have 10 digits, 0 to 9, And when you write a number like uh, 1066, the first one there means 1,000, the zero means no hundreds, the six means six tens, and the other six means six ones. So the same symbol, six, has actually got two different meanings, depending on whereabouts it is in the the number 1066. We're so used to this system, we tend to think of that as numbers. But back in his day, this was... a new discovery it actually came from India, but he popularized it he wrote he wrote a book in fact, the Caliph said he wanted a kind of uh, popular mass book so that the people could get the understand the practical things they needed for their daily lives. So he wrote this book and he wrote um, it was translated into Latin and came to europe and it was really the first book to bring that kind of system to europe so that 's one thing he did. The other thing he did was. He, it's slightly controversial, but um, he wrote certainly one of the great early algebra texts. So, algebra we all remember this: it's x's and y's and things like that at school. You know, if five x equals ten, what does x equal? Answer: uh, so, well, Oh, it must be two. Um, so you can solve equations and things like that. What Al-Khwarizmi did, which people earlier had not done was understand that the X's and Y's there um, are essentially new objects in their own right. Um, we tend to think of them as unknown numbers, but they, they, you don't have to associate numbers with them. Um, now, bizarrely, uh, he's the father of algebra, but his book contains no symbols. He doesn't talk about X's and Y's, but he'll say things like, um, take the unknown quantity and multiply it by itself and so on. We would translate that into take X and turn it into X squared. And at various points in his book, you get the impression that he is thinking about algebraic symbols verbally. And he's telling you how to manipulate the symbols in their own right, rather than thinking of them as just standing for some number that you don't yet know what it is. Um, So From the point of view of the history of algebra, if that interpretation is correct, and this is what's controversial, some people think, no, 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 he didn't really do that at all. Um, But if that is correct, this is the first point at which mathematicians start to move away from the traditional materials of numbers for arithmetic and lines and circles for geometry, and a new kind of concept, a new kind of structure is invented and all of the algebra we do at school can be traced right back to, to him. A certain amount of it goes back even further. It goes back to the ancient Babylonians. But in the Babylonian work, you get the feeling it's to do about rules for finding the number. Whereas in al khwarizmis work, it's rules for manipulating the mathematical concept.
1: I was very interested in how you described um, Isaac Newton. You describe him as a master of coordinate geometry, but you also argue he was a transitional figure leading humanity away from mysticism towards rationality. And you say somewhere that we ignore Newton's mystical aspect and remember him much more for his scientific and mathematical achievements. I'm just wondering, why has history always presented him as this one-dimensional man?
0: I think, um, okay, some historians have always known this. But Newton is the great mathematical physicist, primarily. So we've got Newton's laws of motion, Newton's law of gravity. We've got his Principia Mathematica, which is explaining how the world works in terms of mathematical laws. And that's such a major breakthrough that it kind of trumps everything else that he did. So um, he, he, he did a lot of work in alchemy, which was the forerunner to chemistry, but was looking for... Funny things like um, the elixir of life, the key to immortality, and the philosopher's stone to turn lead into gold. And Newton is actually trying to do this. He, he, he writes a, a long paper with a very long title called Nicholas Flamel, his exposition of the hieroglyphical figures, which he caused to be painted upon an arch in St. Innocent's churchyard in Paris together with the secret book of Artefius and the epistle. It goes on and on like this. And it's containing the practice of the philosopher's stone. And then it starts things like this. The spirit of this earth is the fire in which Pontanus digests his peculant matter, the blood of infants in which the sun and moon bath themselves, the unclean green lion, etc, etc. It's like something out of um, uh, a sort of ancient magic book. It doesn't read like anything rational to the modern mind. Now to Newton, this was just as important as his mathematics. He, he devoted a lot of his time to that. Um, he devoted a lot of his time to biblical scholarship. He, he, he's one of the people who um, dates the beginning of the universe to about 4000 BC. Um, and uh, this is an aspect of Newton that we tend to forget. It really turns
1: the stereotype upside down, doesn't it?
0: That's right. But really, I think the point is here, and I'm not the only person to say this, he's the transitional figure between the mystics before him and the rationalists after him. He's a bit of both.
1: Mm.
0: I think to be a a transitional figure, you are going to be a bit of both. He has to start with a foot in one camp and end with the foot in the other camp. But his, his mystical side is something that is generally ignored, not appreciated, except by Newton scholars, who, of course, know all about it. Talking
1: Books, on new 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with Ian Stewart from Warwick University, who's widely accredited throughout the world for making maths popular. I asked Eam about the role of women in the world of maths. Anna's own view on why so many of women's achievements were either marginalised or ignored in the history of maths. Hard to believe when you consider how the world's first programmer was a mathematician named Augusta Ada King.
0: There's no doubt in my mind at all that women are just as good at maths and science as men. Um, You know, in general terms, there isn't some strange biological difference, which is sometimes said. Many of my math PhD students were women, and they're just as good as the men, but not quite as many of them, even now. Uh, if you go back prior to even the middle of the 20th century, um, there aren't that many women scientists in general. I mean, there are some brilliant ones. There's Marie Curie. There's people like that. But they're unusual. They stand out. And one of the reasons is, is uh, without doubt, because the men and the whole of society put all sorts of obstacles in their way. You know, if if in the 18th century you were a very talented young lady who wanted to do mathematics and was really, really good at it, your parents, your mother would probably say, no, 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 a young lady should not be doing something like mathematics. No, she should learn needlework um, and things like that. And, And this really did go on. And the stories that I tell of three women mathematicians, each one of them had to battle with that kind of thing for their entire career. Um, they weren't allowed to go to university or they were allowed to go to university but they weren't allowed to take the exams or they could get a qualification but then they weren't allowed to have a university job as a lecturer and so on. All of these obstacles in the way and what's amazing is that as well as doing extremely good mathematics they overcome these obstacles and it's so much harder for them and to some extent there's still a lot of that going on. You know, I, I have many friends who are women mathematicians and um, and that they all have stories to tell along those lines. It's harder to get accepted as a woman in those areas. It's better than it was. It's improving quite fast. Um, I'm on the Council of the Royal Society at the moment and the Council of the Royal Society is almost exactly 50-50 men and women. But the society itself has many fewer women fellows, partly because... Um, people have been fellows for 50 years. Uh, you know, it goes back a long way. At the n- level of the newly elected fellows, the numbers are still not 50-50, but they're improving all the time. But there's also a big backlog of people from an era when it was much more difficult for women. So I think generally across the academic world, scientific world, engineering, um, there is positive movement to make things um, you know, to to, 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 to normalise things so that the women are treated just the same as the men. But I think most women would say that there's still a long way to go. And uh, I, I definitely agree with that.
1: I found your um, chapter on Alan Turing, and um, The Machine Stops, very moving, both in relation to all his ambitions and what he achieved and the restrictions that he faced in his life. It seems in some way lots of his eccentricities overshadowed a lot of his strengths because he seemed to have been a tremendous sports player, um, a very good friend and such a hugely original thinker. I think he say somewhere, turning found angles that no one else knew existed. That's but right. his life is was so sad, wasn't it, really, when yes, you think about it? it. it, it it's, what, what's
0: sad about it is that it, it wouldn't happen that way today. But back at the time, he was he was a homosexual at a time when that was frowned upon, when it was illegal, and um, that made him he was seen as a security risk. And on the other hand, he's one of the groups of people who at Bletchley Park during the war broke the German codes and saved hundreds of thousands of lives and shortened the the war probably by about four years. There were quite a lot of mathematicians there. He's one of the uh, one of the leaders. Not the only one, but he, he's probably the best known. Um, the other thing is he, he, he was a man of many parts, as you say. He, he was um, a long distance, very good long-distance runner. He was not quite Olympic-level marathon running, but very nearly. Um, he would run to meetings in London from where he was working, and it was about a 50-mile run, which <laughs> um, is extraordinary. He was a very, very good athlete. He, he was a bit eccentric. He, he was quite personable and um, he was quite popular um, because he joined in with, with things. He, he, um, uh, he, he was more sociable than he's often um, shown to be, particularly in recent movies about him. They really exaggerate the eccentricity. And he, as well as the, the wartime code work, he did at least three really important things mathematically. Um, one was to do with the basic structure of what is or is not provable in mathematics. One was to do with artificial intelligence and can can thinking machines uh, be made. Um, and one was actually in mathematical biology to do with the the markings on animals, like the spots on a leopard or stripes on a tiger. Turing came up with um, some ideas about this. Oh, we're talking nearly 70 years ago now, I guess, Yeah. Um, and um, they are coming back into vogue as biologists and other people are beginning to understand that there's quite a lot of truth in in the general idea that he had in mind. You need to add a lot of modern stuff to it, but the basic idea turns out to be a, a pretty good description of some of the things that go on in in creation of animal markings.
1: And when you think about it, Ian, it's it's all about really having the idea because really when you look at history and how people have carried through ideas, it's all about originality and how you look at what you've got, isn't it?
0: That's right. It's about asking new questions. It's about looking at old things that have been around for a long time and nobody has actually noticed that there's something interesting about them that you should ask or think about. Um, And then, of course, having ask the question you also need to find some some way in towards not a complete answer but the beginnings of an answer you you have to invent methods and points of view that will help to understand what it is you've just you know step one is oh that's interesting i wonder why that's going on um is, is it really like that but then you have to start thinking about well okay, uh, what kind of mathematical structure might be responsible for that? So with the animal markings, you know, all of us look at, you look at the beautiful patterns on animals, and, and um, you, you need a certain kind of mind to say, not just say, oh, isn't that cat pretty, but why has it got stripes? Where did the stripes come from? Why do tigers have stripes? And, and Turing's idea is that certain biochemicals interact with each other in the developing embryo, and they naturally set up the striped pattern for mathematical reasons. Uh, This is a a very basic mechanism in pattern formation now, which is much better understood than it used to be. Uh, And, you know, to some extent, that is what goes on. But you, you need both of those. You need to ask the question, and you need to find a new way of trying to answer it.
1: I hadn't heard in much about uh, Kurt Gödel, and uh, he seems to have been one of one of the more interesting ones that you do uh, profile. And um, he was very philosophical. He asked a lot of himself as well as the world. He was a fan of the Vienna Circle and their philosophical ideas, wasn't he? He
0: was. He was. He was really part of the Vienna Circle. He hung around with them. He, um, you know, he, he he discussed with them. He'd go to coffee tea shops and things with them later in life he started to well yeah i I kind of associated with them but i wasn't really part of it i think he said there was this amazing bunch of people who were interested in uh, a variety of of different issues but um with, with, with the kind of philosophy psychology mathematics and so on all mixed in and a lot of it was about the question of knowledge how do we know things um, what what how can we be sure we 're right how how do you how do you prove things what is truth and so on um, now Gödel is extremely well known among mathematicians um because he totally changed our view of um the logical structure of mathematics before Gödel, people kind of assumed that um Every mathematical statement was either true or false. And if it was true, you could prove it. It might be difficult to find the proof, but nonetheless, there was one. And if it was false, you could disprove it. Sounds reasonable, you know. Basically, uh, provable and true are the same thing, is the idea. And disprovable and untrue are the same thing. And Gödel showed that there are statements in mathematics which cannot be proved and also cannot be disproved. And he actually wrote down, in a sense, exactly such a statement. Um, It's a mathematical version of this statement is false. If I say to you this statement is false, well, if it's false, then that means actually what I've just said is not correct. Therefore, this statement is true. (laughs) But if in fact the statement is true, the statement says this statement is false, so it's false. So whichever one you pick, you immediately deduce the other one, which basically means it can't be either. Um, He did this with a mathematical statement and showed that in a very, very logically rigorous approach to mathematics, there always exist statements which cannot be proved, cannot be disproved. And this totally demolished a research program which was going on run by a German mathematician called David Hilbert, who was probably... The leading mathematician of the period, certainly one of the top three or four, um, and Hilbert, Hilbert's program was to show the opposite, to show that everything in mathematics was either provable or disprovable, and indeed to find a, a kind of to find an algorithm for doing this, to find a, a method that was guaranteed, if, if there was a proof, this method would find the proof; uh, if, if there was a disproof, this method would find the disproof. Um, he didn't think it would be practical. It might take 10 million years to, to, to work through. But nonetheless, in principle, this you, you could do this. This is what Hilbert thought. And he was in the middle of this programme and making lots of progress. And Gödel publishes a paper saying, can't work.
1: You dedicate the book to um, John Davy. He was your editor and friend. And you collaborated for uh, for so many years. Yes. It got me thinking, will maths ever end? <laughs> um
0: I don't think so, um, because, I mean, it might, it it could, you might reach a point where everything's either been solved or it's impossibly difficult and nobody knows what to do. But I don't think so, because it's a bit like if you're exploring some new territory, the bigger the area you have explored, the bigger the perimeter of that area is where there there are new directions to go if you're exploring Africa let's say um, the, the uh, until you actually explore the whole of Africa um, the stuff that you know about has, has more, because there's more of it there's more stuff on the boundary of it that you don't know about ok on, on, on a spherical planet eventually you discover you get to the end and if maths was like that then we might find everything's converging onto just one problem and once you've solved that you've got everything. I don't think so um, the first point is that the actual number of mathematical statements that can be written down is infinite. Um, And uh, certainly the experience of history is, the further mathematics goes, it just gives you more places to start from and more techniques and more kind of case studies of how to go about understanding new problems. Uh, So there's certainly no sign at the moment of it coming to an end. There are lots of unsolved problems around... um, over the years, a lot of the big unsolved problems have been knocked off one by one. You, a lot of people will have heard of uh, Fermat's Last Theorem, which is 350-plus years old and was eventually proved after this very long period of time, and it turned out Fermat was right. Um, so, you know, problems that appear to be intractable do get solved, but then new problems come along which seem to be intractable again, and there's plenty of them at the moment, um, in fact i wrote one book called the problems of mathematics which was essentially talking about the problems that had been solved and ending by listing quite a number that had not been solved and which we mathematicians would dearly like to know not just know what the answer is but you have to know why
1: it's a beautiful way to look at the world because it's in a continual state of unfolding then isn't it
0: that's right it's it's growing it's developing i tend to think of my own little research area almost like a sort of you're watching a child grow up <laughs> And when, when you start working in it, you don't know very much about it, but you uh, start to understand little bits and pieces. And then over the years, these, these fit together better and better, and then you get more difficult problems, and you solve those as well. And, um, and it kind of matures, watching it grow to maturity. And it, it is a bit like um, you know, uh, bringing up a child and, and, and watching, watching it grow to maturity.
1: British writer, mathematician and teacher, Professor Ian Stewart. Significant Figures, Lives and Works of Trailblazing Mathematicians is published by Profile Books and retails for just under 22 euros in hardback or 17 euros on an ebook. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Neve McGee who helped out with this evening's programme and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with the straight-talking words of Ian Stewart from his conclusions to significant figures where Ian writes... On the whole, people don't make themselves successful by working their socks off at something in which they have no real interest. They practice hard because even natural talent needs plenty of exercise to keep it healthy. Because you have to keep in practice to stay talented, but mainly because that's what they want to do. Even when it's difficult or boring, in some curious way, they enjoy it. They love their mathematics. They're obsessed with it. They can do no other. The significant figures are significant because they're driven. What makes them that way? It's a mystery. Passionate words indeed. Good night.
0: Talking books on new song, 106 to 108.